the devil is involved big time in unforgiveness issues. Uh, remember, when we look back at the devil, back to Matthew 23, 37 to 40, what's the devil doing? We see him doing this, we see him doing this, breaking those relationships. That's what the devil does. There are two extremes when we talk about the devil. The first one is focusing too much on the devil. People who do this uh, end up seeing the devil as more powerful than he actually is, uh, and their focus becomes too much on the demonic. And because of that, they end up drained from constantly battling the demonic, and they lose their sense of joy and strength in Christ. So that's what Jesus said, um, you know, when he talked about uh, abiding in him. Abide in me. It's from that abiding that our strength comes. If your focus is always on the devil, you're going to lose that strength. Your focus is going to take you away from that. So we don't want to do that, focus too much. On the other hand, we don't want to ignore the devil either. Uh, people who do this are open prey for demonic harassment because they never properly diagnose issues as being demonic. An incorrect diagnosis prevents effective treatment. Those kinds of people end up in survival mode, just coping with the devil's activity in their life, and they become ineffective as witnesses for Christ. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, Concerning spiritual gifts, my brothers, I would not have you ignorant. Ignorance when it comes to the devil is not an option for us. Because then he's free to do whatever he wants in our lives. Uh, and we're always uh, on the defensive. So one of those gifts, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, is the gift of discernment that helps us identify the devil's presence and activity. So we, want, we, we don't want to ignore the devil. It's important to avoid the extremes. Don't over-glorify him, but don't overlook him either. Broken relationships are his playground and his specialty. He works to divide, and wherever, wherever he finds division in a relationship, he works to, make, to exacerbate that or to make it worse. So when you think about that, you know, you're, maybe you're in a conflict with somebody. Pull it to a stop. It may be hard. You may be angry, you may be offended, but understand that if you let that roll forward without dealing with it, the devil's going to be in there stirring it, making it worse than it is. You know, it's actually sort of interesting. The Apostle Paul, in the next uh, uh, passage we have here, Ephesians 6, he actually says our battle is a spiritual one. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So when we think about that, here's us, right? And I'm fighting with my friend over here, and there's a devil sitting right here, and that devil is busy stirring things up. You know, he's making things worse. Paul says, my primary enemy is not my friend. The primary enemy that's messing with our relationship is this guy. It's a spiritual battle. And so we need to take into account that spiritual battle. So that means that the person who has offended you is not your primary enemy. Now, unforgiveness, let's get real specific here. Ephesians 4, 25 uh, to 27 and 32. And I've got a little bit of a typo right there. Uh, 32 to 32. It should be 31 to 32. Um, if he, that passage says that through unforgiveness, you can give the devil a foothold. Let's unpack it a little bit. Therefore, and the word therefore means knowing what you, we know to now. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. 
For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Some uh, English translations say, do not give the devil a foothold. And a foothold is this idea, you know, I, I remember I had a friend of mine who was a rock climber. And he would take me out into the mountains uh, and we would climb rocks. And so here we are climbing rocks and we've got ourselves, you know, um, busy hanging on. And they're little, little handholds, little footholds. We had to find those footholds on the rock wall. And we would stand and we would study that rock wall. Yeah, there's one there, there's one there. And we would strategize how we were going to climb that rock wall. And we did. But you had to have something to hang on to. What Paul is saying, don't give the devil a foothold. He is saying that undealt with anger and unforgiveness gives the devil a foothold to hang on to your life. When you get rid of that foothold, guess who doesn't have the opportunity to hang on anymore? And he begins to fall away. Devil. So, okay, what does this mean? Lay aside falsehood, falsehood. Speak truth one of you to another. That means don't lie to one another. Now, there's two ways really that you can lie to one another. And I guess, you know, in some ways, it's a bit of a spectrum because you can sort of blend all this a little bit too. But let's see here. If you think about the lie like this, this is active lying. This is where um, I stole your money. You came and said, hey, I left my money on the counter and you were in the room and did you take it? And I say, no, I didn't take it. I have bluntly lied to you. Using my voice, no, I didn't take it. Uh, or I can uh, passively lie. Uh, you come to me and you're missing your money and you say, did you take it? And I'm beating around the bush. Well, you know what? Uh, yeah, Charlie was here uh, a while ago and John was here a while ago too and I never knew who answer your question. So we can lie to each other actively by just boldly saying, no, I didn't take your money or we can passively lie by avoiding it and not responding at all. You can lie to people by speaking your lie or you can lie to people with your silence. He says, lay aside the falsehood. Now, a lot of us in my culture, we like to avoid the conflict. So rather than deal with conflict, we actually lie to each other by just not dealing with it. He said, don't do that. That too is falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. That means we have to communicate. Now, I don't care how you communicate. You can email somebody. You can talk to somebody. You can get somebody to help you to talk to somebody. But we have to communicate um, what's going on between us. Uh, he says we are members of one another. First Corinthians 12 is very clear about this. It says we all belong to the same body. And it talks about how we, we um, when one of us hurts, the others hurt. So that means that we're tied to one another. It means that we have spiritual connection with one another through Christ. And when, when I do something to hurt you, it also hurts me, and it also hurts people around me. So understand that the, the, when you choose falsehood, that it has a bigger impact. Then he says, be angry, and yet do not sin. Um, who here has been taught that being angry is wrong? I was sort of taught that, and yet I grew up to be a very angry man. 
Why is that? Probably because I was angry, but I was never really allowed to express that anger, so it came out in different ways. Um, anger is not wrong. There are two kinds of anger that I can see in the scripture. Let's look at them. Righteous anger focuses on the destructiveness of the sin. It's unself-centered. I think about Jesus when he went in through the temple, right? What did Jesus do? He went in, he became angry, he turned my father's house from a house of prayer into a marketplace, and he cleared the temple. He was focused on the sin. So if we look at that kind of uh, focus, uh, let's, draw it, let's draw it this way. Here's two people struggling with each other. And here's the issue or the sin between them. Let's go this, the sin between them. Righteous anger focuses on the sin. And it's a powerful motivating force. Paul says, be angry. Be angry enough that you do something about this, but don't sin. What's the sin? The sin is when we start hating the other person. The other person, Jesus died for that other person. I have no right to hate that other person. And when I do, I sin. The other thing, actually, interestingly enough, when we go back to the definition of sin, whatever is not of faith is sin. So that means I also need to trust in God. Invite God into this whole relationship breakdown. When I try to deal with the sin, and more than that, try to deal with it in my own strength, or, or when, forgive me, when I target the other person as the problem, and I also try to deal with that in my own strength, that is sinful. But when I invite God into the situation, and I focus on dealing with the sin that separates us so that I can get that sin out of the way, that is righteous anger. And that's what Paul calls us to. Communicate, talk to each other, be real with each other, lay aside falsehood, be angry, deal with it. And then he says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? It means deal with your anger until it's done. Deal with the situation until it's done. Don't Put it to bed, so to speak. You know, I remember a young couple came to me one time and they were struggling with, they'd been doing their devotions on this. So they decided that they would deal with their anger uh, toward each other. They both had some issues that they had not talked about. And they began to talk about it. He got defensive and she got angry and then two of them ended up fighting and they didn't, they did not get their issues dealt with before the sun went down. And they felt like, now they failed God. We didn't get it dealt with before the sun went down. And I said, this is not about when the sun goes down physically. That means you don't have to deal with everything before the sun goes down. What if you have lived a life with each other where you've stockpiled a lot of undealt with issues? You're not going to deal with that between now and sundown. So they had been together for a number of years. They did have a bunch of undealt with issues. So what I did was I said, we're going to not let the sun go down on your anger. We're going to deal with your issues until they're done. So I said, uh, I want three meetings a week, Monday, um, Wednesday, and Saturday night, 7 to 8 p.m. You're going to sit down and you're going to discuss uh, your issues with each other and you're going to forgive each other. Are you ready for this? Okay. We made a list of all these issues. I taught them how to share. He got the share first. Then she had the list. Then she got the share. He had the list. Then they had to decide, have we hurt each other? And then they had to forgive each other. And it took a while few months but they met regularly with each other 
they, they, as they gradually dealt with one issue, they checked it off until finally they got down to the bottom one and they were done. They did not let the sun go down on their anger. They dealt with it till it was done. And that's one of the things we need to do. You know, I mean, Rubina, you, you and I were talking about a little earlier on here about how, you know, sometimes in the church, when something goes wrong, the easiest thing for us is just to move somebody somewhere else. That's being false. That doesn't deal with what, what has happened, right? That just gives the devil an opportunity to do it all over again. And that's one of the challenges. And we have that same issue in the church here in Canada, where we just move people around. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's hard. Uh, and sometimes that's where that righteous anger really comes in, because that righteous anger is like, Jesus is like, I'm dealing with this. That righteous anger is one of the things that pushed him to the cross. I am angry that my children are separate from me. I am doing this thing. And, and he, 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 he did it. So, you know, that whole element of don't let the sun go down in your anger. Now, again, culturally, it's sort of interesting in, in, in different places. I've learned in a couple of cultures um, that um, it's not always easy to get people to be truthful with you. Um, in some cultures, it's people are too truthful too quickly. <laughs> so you get a guy from a culture where they, they're not quickly truthful. Like I was talking with one guy in a part of Africa. He says, here for us to be truthful with you, we have to know you well enough to be able to risk being truthful with you. So it's hard to get the truth out of someone until you know them well enough. Over here, the way we get to know each other is we're truthful with you right off the bat, but sometimes that's hard because it can be offensive too. So you end up with these two different cultural clashes, eh? Um, and, uh, and which way is better? Well, that's part of the journey we get to walk out together as we discover that. Um, giving the, the devil an opportunity through silence, though, I want to just talk briefly about that. Top of page 33. Silence is a form of deceit. Uh, and I want to say, don't use silence to protect those you love from pain. Um, that means silence can be dishonest. And when you're using silence as a way to be dishonest or to protect other people, don't do it. Why? Because it isolates you from the very people that could help you. You know, I think about this addict who came to me and uh, he had been uh, cycling through his addiction. And his addiction was to crack cocaine. Uh, and what happened was crack would blow up his life. So there's my little explosion. And then he would have a time of freedom. And then he would have one cigarette. Uh, and then he would have one pack of cigarettes a day. And then he would get to one beer. And then he would get to a case of beer. And then after that, he would end up buying crack. Uh, and then he would smoke crack until his life exploded again. And he betrayed his family over and over and over until he said, my kids hate me and my, my wife can't trust me anymore. And he said, I'm starting my cycle again. I said, how far are you into your cycle? He said, I'm right here. I'm just past one cigarette a day. I'm on my way to a pack a day. I said, have you told your wife? He said, I can't do that for her. I can't hurt her anymore. I said, but you are hurting her again. You're setting her up for this next crash all over again. And I said, so back to Ephesians. Lay aside that falsehood. Well, what does that look like for him? I said, you've got to bring your wife in on this. And uh, you've got to bring her in quick. Uh, this is my little pain meter. Here's the pain. The higher we go up, the more pain there is. Here's time. 
The further we go along, the longer the time is. Here you go. Tell her now, because the pain levels, the sooner you tell her, are gonna be lower than what happens up here if you wait longer. Does that make sense to you? And he says, yeah. Then he got up and walked out of my office and two weeks later I got a phone call from jail. And he says, I just wanna let you know I ended up in jail, I couldn't do it. And I haven't heard from him since. So this whole idea, we want to learn how to talk. And that whole learning how to communicate with each other, that takes some learning. It's not the easiest thing to do and it takes practice, but, but it's important. Uh, because if we don't, Ephesians says we can give the devil an opportunity. You know, I think about, about that. I, I had a lady I ran into one time. Her husband was an adulterer, and she was still living with him. And she listened to me do this teaching. And she came up to me afterwards. And she said, told me about her husband. And I said, well, you know, Jesus said if a guy breaks his marriage vows, that's the one time you're free to leave. That and death. So I said, why are you still with him? Well, money, she says, I can't afford to leave. I said, okay. Next option is I said, are you willing to forgive him? I mean, not that he's gonna stop doing what he's doing, but at least you can be free of the anger at him. Forgive him. Remember, when we forgive somebody, we're not saying what they did was right or that we're happy with it, but we're putting them in the hands of God. God can deal with it. She looks at me and she says, not in your life. I said, what do you, what do you, you're not willing to forgive? Not on your life. Okay. So, I got thinking about that, and as I'm looking at her, it struck me. Are you willing to be made willing? And she looks at me and she goes, well, I'm not willing to forgive, but I, I'd be willing to be made willing, because then I don't really have to be willing. And I thought, oh, okay. See, this is one of the things I've learned in this whole yes, no thing. I used to think that it, everybody was black and white like me. Yes was yes and no was no. Turns out I'm actually not that black and white either. I've since learned that. But there's a yes. There's a no. In between a yes and a no, there's a maybe. In between here, there's an almost yes and an almost no. Where are you? So I asked her, are you willing to forgive him? No. First thing that I want to ask is I want to find out if she's a total no, an extreme no. Well, would you be willing to be made willing? And she goes, well, I'd be willing to be made willing. Suddenly things move a little bit sideways. There's a little bit of opportunity there. The thing that I look for when I'm doing prayer ministry with people is I'm always looking for that little chink in their armor where, where they will let Jesus in. They might not want to give Jesus much, but Jesus is pretty good about when he gets his toe in the door, opening things up. So I said, okay, well, let's pray that prayer. So again, and, and I teach this often in, in, my, in, my, for, in my effective prayer ministry seminar. How do you hear what people have to say and then pray that way? So I said, you're not willing to forgive them, but you're willing to be made willing. Let's pray that prayer. So I, I said, pray with me. So she goes, okay. Dear Jesus, I hate my husband. I'm not willing to forgive him, but I'm willing to be made willing in Jesus' name. Amen. And we finished that prayer. It's quite quick. And she finished the prayer, and then she looks up at me. And you can sort of see the thinking going on in her mind. And she says, this is just hurting me, isn't it? I might as well just forgive him and be done with it. And I thought, that was the fastest answered prayer I've ever seen in my life. Okay. Now what has Jesus done? 
We invited him into here. He just moved her willingness all the way over to here. Okay. Dear Jesus, pray with me. Dear Jesus, I invite you into the pain that my husband has called, caused me. And immediately as she said, I invite you into the pain, she locked up. What was happening? We're experiencing a demonic manifestation. And she looked up at me and said, there's a demon. And I'm going, yes, there is. I said, do you want to get rid of it? I always like to ask that question. I've actually had people say, I like my demons. You cannot help a person get free from demons unless they want to be free. Even Legion, you remember that story about Legion in the Bible? He comes running down toward Jesus. Jesus boat lands on the beach. This guy from the tombs comes running down. They call him Legion. And, and what was he demonstrating by running toward Jesus? That he wanted Jesus' help. He was repentant. Even though the demons are going, what do we have to do with you, Lord? We, they didn't want to go near Jesus. But the man himself wanted to. And Jesus saw that repentance and met him there and set him free. So we, we're looking for a repentant person. When she locked up, what is the demon trying to do? The demon is trying to stop that repentance prayer. Because it knows that the moment repentance happens, it loses its grip. So very often, this is where, how I find demons manifest. Uh, they will try to stop the repentance prayer. They will flare and try to uh, pull us into attacking the demon. I never just go after the demon. I bind your power in the name of Jesus. Stand aside. I command you to let her speak. Now, ma'am, let's go back to the repentance prayer. And we're going to go... We're going to do that until we get through that repentance prayer. Well, she finally did. Here, Jesus. And she grounded out through clenched teeth. I invite you into the pain my husband has caused me. I forgive him for that. I ask your forgiveness for hating him. Now, that's the other thing that should be said. Here's the um, victim. She was the victim. He was the bad guy. Very often, we say, I forgive him. But what about the fact that she has also hated him? She has also hated somebody that Jesus died for. She has committed a sin too. So we pray, dear Jesus, I receive forgiveness for hating him. I now release him to you, put him in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. And then when she finished that, and this story is actually in my book. Um, when she finished that, I looked at her and said, my turn now. Spirit of unforgiveness, the Lord rebukes you, I command you out of her life. And it peeled off of her and her let her go. And we prayed, come Holy Spirit, and she was set free. Didn't fix the husband. I hate to say it. There are very many times when we forgive people, it doesn't fix the husband. It doesn't fix the other person. But what we do is we put that person in the hands of God, God will deal with that person. We are the ones set free. Any thoughts?